I find myself, at occasions like this, more and more finding myself saying, um, without knowing, uh, I'm pleased to be with you, fellow revolutionaries. <laughs> and it's coming out of me uh, kind of spontaneously. But it has an existential reality that I want to address to the person sitting in your chair next to your box. And it is this. I think we know, I think we know that what is being discussed here requires the fundamental transformation of the most powerful political economic system in the history of the world. So that is a revolutionary proposition. That is not a light suggestion about, Kenny likes this phrase that I sometimes use, I am very much for projects. And I think projectism is a dead end. By which I mean, unless our projects begin to be informed by strategy and knowledge that is in accord with the notion that we are, in fact, interested in transforming the system, or we don't get to where we want to go, we will be falling back into projectism of great value but not transformative. That's a very heavy thing to grasp. So uh, Mary this morning was saying, you know, are we, are we potted plants, <laughs> that phrase? Are we up to that existential question? So let me put it another way. The system problem can be described in many, many different dimensions, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about the political economic system problem. But the bottom line is really existential. What the person in your chair and my chair is actually willing to cop to. Really. Are you up to it? So anyway, I find myself thinking about that aspect as a, you know, I'm a political economist and a historian, but that's the thing that comes to the fore when I actually listen to a day like I've heard today, which is exciting and extraordinary, and that's the message. So now, what does it mean to transform the largest political economy in the history of the world. And what is the system in that sense? You know, I've heard today the word capitalism and socialism once or twice. <laughs> so it, one way of putting it is if you don't like corporate capitalism, and that's the message here, sort of, and you don't like socialism or state socialism, what is it you want? And if you don't know, what are you talking about if you're into system change? So one proposition to suggest to you is that we are in the process of defining a different system. There didn't have to be only two. Who says? A different system that is equitable, ecologically sustainable, builds and nurtures community, and offers a vision of the future that we would actually embrace, affirm, and commit to. Maybe commit our lives to building. Whoa, whoa. So let me talk a little bit about systems and how one begins to sketch it, at least as I think one begins to sketch it. Historically, most systems have actually been defined essentially by who controls wealth. So that. In the medieval era, land was the primary source of wealth, and the lords and kings and church 
had the land and they controlled the action. Oversimplified to be sure, but not too much. In 19th century capitalism, the kind we had long ago, competitive capitalism, mostly farmers, by the way, farm businessmen and small merchants, the capital was spread around and we had a kind of populist democratic capitalism. State socialism, the state owns the capital and controls the action. Oversimplified, but we've seen what that does. And then there is what we call corporate capitalism. Now that's the kind we live in, but it comes in different flavors. So at the end of the 19th century, the corporations and the elites who owned them controlled the capital, and they dominated. And then there was a great political movement culminating in the New Deal in the post-war era that created all over the Western world a modified system that we are actually just coming out of. And the way it worked, it was called social democracy in Europe, it was called liberalism here. The way it worked, sort of, was that corporate capitalism was allowed to exist, the elites owned the capital, and then there was a balancing kind of re regulatory strategy enforced by politics. And at the heart of that politics was an institution. This is an important piece. It was not just movement building. I'm into movement building. There was a powerful muscular institution that informed the politics of that era, and it was called the labor union, both on the ground floor and the I worked for Gaylord Nelson, the founder of Earth Day. I was ran a draft. I used to work in the House and Senate, did policy planning at, for my sins at one point in the State Department. But Gaylord was the guy who founded for Earth Day. He was a conservation governor. Get the term? Conservation governor. He evolved to become a great environmental leader, and then he aspired to be an ecological leader over time. And labor was important, even though there were fights over environmental issues to getting him elected and others elected. Sort of a balanced corporate capitalism. One way to understand what has happened and why the trends are going south and why we've increased global warming gases X percent any year you want to pick, any decade you want to pick 30% over the last 30 years, whatever the number you want, and why the environmental trends are going south slowly is that that capacity to hold the corporate system in line is disintegrating. The American labor movement was at 34.3% in 1953 at its peak. In Sweden it was 85%, much more powerful. It is now down to 11% total and 7% in the private sector and decaying. We live in an era when that system is in decay and the results are obvious. Income distribution is going south. Over the last 30 years, it's an incredible number. The top 1% has increased its take from 10% of the economy to 20%. The bottom 99% lost all of that money. Part of that is the loss of power that I'm talking about, reflected in the income distribution. You see it there. And we see it in civil liberties. One, I always like to remind people of this one because it's not just environment and equity, it is civil liberties. And the most important gauge of liberty, we can get into legalities and civil libertarians here, is who loses their liberty. The United States over the last 30 years has gone from about 55 people per 100,000 in prison 
to 753 per 100,000 in prison, eight times per capita more than any other Western nation, including Russia. That's what's going on with liberty and brown and black people who are not in this room primarily critical. That's the country we live in. Something is decaying before our eyes, and we see it most because of the environment we're talking about and the environmental issues, but there is a systemic crisis emerging. If you don't like capitalism, you don't like, or corporate capitalism, you don't like socialism, what do you want? Let's go back to that. One other indicator. It's not just the corporate domination as an institutional power drive. The corporation, the large corporation, must grow. This is not a matter of choice. You're a corporate executive. You want to do well by what's going on in this society. You want to do well by the environment. And you don't meet your Wall Street quarterlies, they will kill you. It is not a matter of choice. The giant corporation has to grow. It has to gobble resources. It has to sell you things. It has to, whenever it can, produce the kind of gases we're talking about. Not out of choice. These are good guys. It's not personal. It's about the structure of the dynamic of the system. Now, I understand there are what I call good guy corporations. And they're good. And I welcome them whenever possible. But they are a minor fraction of the large corporate system. The other piece of this, just to get a sense of it, and it hasn't come up in the, main, in the discussion, really. We need to confront this. The top 400 people, people, you could get them easily in this room. The top 400 people own more wealth, more capital than the bottom 180 million Americans taken together. That is a medieval structure of political economic power, and I don't mean that rhetorically. That structure of power shows up in politics, it shows up in waste of resources, it shows up in ecological decay. It is the defining characteristic of this particular corporate system. That's heavy stuff. And what you are saying, if I hear you correctly, is you want to change that. We haven't talked much about wealth and who owns it, but you want to alter the trends in an ecologically and human way that builds community, that builds ecological sustainability, that creates a decent society, and that's what you are up against, and so am I. Now, so that's kind of dreary. But I'm a historian, and uh, Revolutions or evolutions or transformative change is as common as grass in world history. It happens all the time. Middle East, if you look at the Soviet Union, it blew up. If you look at the American Revolution against the most powerful army and navy in the history of the world at that point, took them on, we won. Things change. The civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the environmental movement, all things sometimes change. And so we have that possibility that we know is also real. I want to suggest to you that we are in the prehistory, I want to say it carefully, and I think it's important to get it, that we are in the prehistory, not yet the history, of the possible transformation of this system. Uh, what do I mean by that? 
I mean that on the one hand, the system itself is creating pain and unemployment and poverty and ecological disasters and climate disasters and individual liberty disasters. And people are learning personally, first time in my lifetime, that something's wrong. Something's wrong. That's a big deal. That is a big deal at the level of what's called the ideology, the knowledge system. People sense something's wrong. They didn't like, like either one of the guys, I'm for Obama, that we're going to solve the problems. We know that or sense that. That's when people begin asking interesting questions, long-term questions. And what they begin to do also is projects and explore. And particularly in areas of great pain, they either are forced to develop something new or the pain continues. Brutal, brutal, brutal logic. I worked with steel workers in the state of Ohio in 1977. Think about Ohio because they've gone through 30 years of what we're beginning to go through around the nation in many parts of the country. Started there in the late 70s. 5,000 people thrown out of work in Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown sheet and tube went down. But that day was a big deal. It was understood at that point that never happened before. Front page newspapers, it happens all the time now. And the steel workers in that town and the local churches, per force of pain, per force of no options, per force of moral concern, began to say, why don't we do something? What can we do? And they said, we're going to take over this mill and run it as a worker-owned mill. And they organized the churches, and they organized the politics, and they organized more and more. And in fact, they got the Carter administration at those days to, to give them money to do a very sophisticated study and give them promise of $200 million loan guarantees. And they were going to do it. Transforming the ownership of wealth to a common community stabilizing system. And of course, after the election of 1978, the Carter administration went away and it was all gone and nothing happened except these people knew what they were up against and they built a politics so that they educated the people. And in the state of Ohio, over 30 years, you will now find more worker-owned companies perhaps per capita than any place in the country. They knew they had to be in for the long haul and they had to transform capital. And some of you have heard about the Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland through our organization and my colleague Ted Howard, deeply involved. Very sophisticated complex of worker-owned companies, the greenest laundry in that part of the country, a large-scale three million heads of lettuce uh, complex for growing, growing uh, what's the term, solar-heated greenhouse. There is also solar installation company, worker-owned, in a complex that builds the community and uses the purchasing power of universities, hospitals, $3 billion in that area to generate a whole different system in that local area. And it is expanding to many other cities. What is that all about? It's just a project, could be projectism. But it also has a transformative vision of how you actually could alter in a real way, in the greenest possible way, in that poor community that is being picked up in Atlanta and Pittsburgh 
and Amarillo, Texas, and many other cities around the country. Why? Because the pain levels are high and people understand you either do some transformation and then build a politics around it, or you can't get on with it. I'm getting a little time signal, so I'm going to go a little faster. I want to urge you to consider that as we build through the difficulties of this era, one of the elements that will allow us both to achieve our environmental and ecological goals and our community building goals and our equity goals involves transforming ownership, taking it seriously because that's where the system's heart is. And we have something to build on. There are 130 million Americans involved in co-ops and credit unions. Did you know that? They're all co-ops, 40% of the society. There are 10,000 worker-owned companies to build on. You don't know about that because the press doesn't tell you. 25% of American electricity is socialized, municipal, and co-ops. You probably didn't know that. There are land trusts, there are social enterprises, there are community development corporations, all with a very American form of decentralized changing ownership in a way that builds community as well. We are laying the groundwork, I think, in practice, in institutions. Let me underline that. It isn't just movement building. In institutions that can enforce and build the power base of a politics that is both equitable and community-sustaining and ecologically sustaining if we're up to it as the pain deepens. The problem is in the seats and we're sitting on whether we actually are willing to deal with this as a historic challenge that we, who, us, who else, grasp this reality as a possibility and then begin thinking through what the larger vision of a whole system might entail. So that simply for illustration, given the time, in Cleveland, these big hospitals and universities with $3 billion of purchasing power help stabilize this local system. When our next system is built, we will have mass transit and high-speed rail, and we will use those contracts to stabilize communities under worker community control. And then we will also take on the big corporations. And here I doff my hat. You may get the idea that I'm on the left side of the spectrum perhaps. I doff my hat to the Chicago School of Economics, the most conservative part of the economics profession, in its era of integrity. Before Milton Friedman was a student and, when student, and when he became a student, his teachers were saying, hear this, this is because people wanted a genuine competitive capitalism. You can't regulate those big guys. They're too powerful, they will capture the regulatory structure. That's the Chicago School of Economics. And you can't break them up because you break them up, they'll regroup, the little fish will eat, the big fish will eat, the little fish will move back where we are. In order to preserve a community-sustaining free enterprise capitalist system in that vision, they have to be nationalized. They were honorable men at the original Chicago School of Economics, and I disagree with them on many issues, but they confronted what you need to look at down the line at some point, and they weren't even considering the growth dynamic. Heavy wrap. So my time is fading away. 
I'm getting a wave. So I want to suggest to you, uh, as we consider the implications of this extraordinary day, and the people all around you, and all of us, that actually that's what we're doing. We're forming the ideas. Remember, the New Deal was created out of the experiments that were then generalized when the time local laboratories of democracy. We're beginning to reach to that point. I write books. I'm an intellectual, quote, quote, professor. I don't think ideas matter a damn most of the time, except sometimes. When people understand the old ideas don't work, then really beginning to get serious about what the outlines of a community-sustaining, ecologically intelligent system actually would look like. It's a design problem. And then there's a political problem to build the base with all the allies who also need to be included as we go forward. I have a hunch that people like those of us who sit in this room are up to that task. Thank you very much.